Well, good morning, everybody. And I'd also like to uh, add my congratulations to all the fathers out there today. Um, today I got, for my Father's Day uh, gifts, I got socks, which is actually what I ordered. So that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, for the amount of walking that I did earlier on this year, all my socks have got holes in them. And, uh, and so that was a, a good thing to get socks. So often socks are like that, that new tie that you get given or something, isn't it? It sort of sits in the cupboard and doesn't get used. So my congratulations to all the fathers today. Well, this morning we're going to carry on with our series looking at the life of David. And uh, just to bring us up to speed with what it is that we've been doing, uh, we've been looking at how it is that David has been tested. And that's why we've got this overarching theme of being tested that we're talking about over these last few weeks and into the weeks ahead. But being tested is something that we often try to avoid, isn't it? We don't like tests. Uh, There's a few people that I knew when I grew up who liked exams. I wasn't a person who liked exams. Uh, But the tests that we have in in, in life are often the ones that are the unexpected. And so we find in David's life, as he's being groomed by God to be a king, that he is going through tests that he would never have anticipated. What we're going to find today is that there's an echo in this story. The story that we're going to look at is another time of testing for David. But it has an echo because only two chapters earlier than the story we're going to look at today, uh, David had a very similar experience. And so when we look at the scriptures and we find that God seems to somehow repeat the scenarios or repeat himself, uh, it's a little bit like a father telling the children, listen, I want you to hear this and I want you to hear it well. How many of you fathers out there have had to do that with your kids? Yeah, I want you to listen and I want you to listen well. Um, Now I've told you once, but I want you to hear this again. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, of course it does. And do we always remember? Not always. But I think because we've got two scriptures, sorry, two chapters of scripture dedicated to essentially this same theme today, we need to realize that God is wanting us to learn more about this, um, this very, very sense of, of, of well-being that he wants to build into our lives, having been the result of being tested. And uh, I'm being tested right now because my uh, remote clicker won't work. So um, if you just take that into the car park, run it over three times and bring it back. <laughs> See, I'm being tested. Okay, so if we could, uh, if we could just bring up the next slide, that'd be good. We'll do it. We'll do it the manual way. I'll write it on the back wall. Um, that'd be good. So let's uh, let's try and pick up the story. David has been put into a wilderness experience, and by being put into a wilderness experience, it means that he is not in a comfortable environment. He's got the the pleasures of home have gone, and that means for each one of us, we need to look at this environment and see when are the times that we've been put in a similar setting, when we've been put into a testing time. David was in this testing place and uh, just a a few months earlier on. And what happened in this testing place is that Saul, his enemy, the king, came looking for him to kill him. As it would happen, as strange things do, because truth is always stranger than fiction, don't you realize? Is that Saul went into a deep, dark cave to go to the toilet, okay, as kings do. And there at the back of the cave was David and all of his men. And they said, praise God. Praise God. Look at this. God has delivered Saul into our hand. But David said to his men, we're not going to kill him because he's God's anointed. We're not going to touch him because he's God's man. He's still the king of Israel. And so what happened was David snuck up 
and chopped a portion of Saul's cloak. And he took that piece of cloth, and as Saul was leaving the cave, he yelled out to him and he said, Look, basically he said, Does this belong to you? And Saul turns around and he goes, Yeah, it does. And I realized that you could have killed me right there and then. And he said, David, you are far more righteous than I am. You have treated me well. I have treated you badly. And the Lord will reward you. Thank you. The Lord will reward you for the way that you treated me today. So here is Saul, and he's pursuing this young man. And he is humbled by the fact that David could have killed him, but he doesn't. And the reason why David said, I'm not going to kill you, he says, because God's hand is on you. You are still the king. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And so Saul leaves and he goes back to his palace. But there's something in the human heart that likes to turn a, a, a sad story into a bad story. You see, Saul was humbled, but because he was bitter towards David, that humility translated into humiliation. And because of the bitterness in his soul, instead of just going, well, you know, David taught me a lesson, I realize now he's actually not against me. But because of the anger and the bitterness that he had, uh, that, that, that humility turned into humiliation. And so, therefore, Saul said, I'm going to go back on my word. I'm not going to honor what I said when I will not kill David. And he then goes off and he attempts to kill David again. And this is where we pick up the story. We pick up the story and it's a very familiar pattern to us. We've got Saul now pursuing somebody in the hope that if he kills this young man, then all his troubles will come to an end. But where are the troubles for Saul? The troubles aren't physical. It's not like he's being uh, pursued by an army. The trouble isn't uh, physical in as much as he's got plenty to eat, he's got plenty of support, he's still the king. The trouble that he had was in his soul. In his soul, at the very core of his being, the simple truth is he hated David's guts. Why? Because David was good at what he did. David was very good at being a soldier. David was very good at honoring and worshiping the Lord. With the simple things that he had been given, David could honor God. David was really good at what? Throwing stones. So with the simplicity of that, he took out Goliath. David was very good at playing the lyre, playing the harp. And with that, he would soothe King Saul's soul. But he was popular. He was popular amongst the people, and Saul wasn't. And so for that reason, Saul hated David with absolute bitterness. And so here we find this story repeating itself. The story of the soul being tested, Saul's soul, David's soul, because these two men are facing off against one another. One was picking the fight, one doesn't want the fight. So who's going to win? Well, the story goes that um, out in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the in the valley of En Gedi, at a place called the Hill of Hikalar, David was camped with his now 600 men, 600 Outlaws, 600 people who were essentially a, a rabble that David had collected to turn into an army. And David was there going from place to place, trying to avoid being captured by Saul. But Saul, determined to kill this guy again, he takes 3,000 young, fit warriors with him, 
and he goes in pursuit of David. And the story is picked up when the men are camped down, um, camped down in the valley, and uh, David is up in the hills, and he looks down and he sees this, this camp of Saul's men, 3,000 men. And this is how the story goes. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. And he saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Job's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. Okay, so two invitations, only one guy took it up. Okay, which you really can't blame him, can you? Okay, you got 3,000 of, of, of Saul's best soldiers in the camp, and David saying, who's going to go down the camp with me? Will you come with me? You know, and he talks to this guy who's a Hittite. He's from another, from another nation. Um, but he also turns to Zeruiah. Uh, sorry, to Abishai. And Abishai is, we're told, the son of Zeruiah. Now, who's Zeruiah, we ask? Well, Zeruiah is actually David's sister. And so therefore, Abishai is his nephew. And we find that this blood tie between David and Abishai goes for the whole of his life. Abishai was a swordsman, and he liked carrying his sword. He liked using his sword. And it seemed to me that every time um, Abishai was asked or confronted about how to answer a problem, we're going to find that for Abishai it was a sword. Okay? So let's continue on in this story. Um, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with a spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Okay, good keen man, Abishai, isn't he? Okay. Let's jump to this guy Abishai again. Abishai only has a sword. Now, the spear he was going to kill Saul was, was Saul's own spear. And he said, look, let me at him. I won't even have to take a, two swipes at the guy. He says, I'll only stab him once, probably straight through the ticker. Okay? And, and the thing about this guy is that he's a very good soldier. He's a very good swordsman. He's related to David. But the problem that he has, like a lot of people who are very gifted in one particular area, is that if you only own a sword, if you only, like, like a tradesman, if you only own a hammer, then everything is a nail. Yeah? So what's Abishai's answer to every problem that he faces? Pull out the sword and kill him. What we're going to find as we move on in the life of David is Abishai appears again and again at the right hand of David. And every time Abishai turns up, He's having a conversation with David, and it goes like this. Shall I kill him? You know, you've got a problem there, David. Do you want me to kill him? You know, David, I'm pretty handy with my sword. Do you think I could kill him? Now, this is true for a lot of us. You know, if we've only got a, a nail, sorry, if we've only got a hammer, everything's a nail. Okay? So uh, you might be a lawyer. Or you might have had success with lawyers. So your answer is when you've got a problem, sue them. 
sue him, take him to court, okay? If you've, uh, if you've had trouble with uh, family relationships, just dismiss them. Don't invite them to Christmas, don't invite them to the birthday party, just be off with them. You see, we can often have one answer that works for us, but it doesn't actually work in the long term. And this is what David is trying to show to the men around him. He's got 600 men who are the hardest, meanest dudes in the whole of Israel. Okay, I mean, these guys are set apart, being chased down because they're criminals, because they're hard men, they're rebels, they don't want to be part of regular society. And David is trying to shape them into being something that is more godlike in character. So let's pick up on the story and see how it goes from here. Okay, we're down to, to verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. Okay? So you see the three options that David says? The Lord will kill him, he'll die in natural causes, or he'll die in battle. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, go get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near, David, near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Okay? So it's, it's a really crazy picture, isn't it? That you're imagining there's 3,000 people, you know, sort of like Easter camp. Okay? Easter camp. Okay? Without the chefs. All right? They were cooking their own food. And David, this young guy, walks into the enemy's camp. Okay? At any given moment, this well-known public figure of David, this handsome, ruddy face, as we're told about, could have been seen, and immediately it would have been all on. All were taken for one of those 3,000 soldiers who have been told that David is a mongrel, who doesn't like the king, he's, he's bad news for our nation, we've got to get rid of him, because you can guarantee that Saul's PR machine would have been doing a really good job of this. He would have been convincing everybody that David was just uh, the enemy of the state. So here's David walking through the camp with Abishai. <laughs> I got the answer, I got the answer, okay? And they sneak up to this king's sleeping place, and there is Saul with his spear right beside his head. The interesting thing about Saul is whenever you read about his actions, he's usually got his spear in his hand. You notice that? Twice he tried to take out David. It said he just picked up his spear and hurled it at him, which means that Saul probably had the spear close to him, would have been a comfortable friend to him, would have been familiar in his hand, the weight of it, like an Olympic javelin thrower. They have their favorite javelin. You know, this would have been similar to, to Saul. And then, of course, his water jug. You know, when you're camped out in the valley of En Gedi, you need your water jug. And Abishai says, just let me at him. I'll only need one strike. I'll kill him. I'll pin him to the ground, he won't get up again. David says, we don't touch God's anointed people, but we're going to teach him a lesson. We're going to show him how much I am serious about God's ways over man's ways. I'm going to prove to Saul again that God's ways count. What David had come to realize in his young life is that your opponents figure into God's plan for your life. 
But we don't like this idea, do we? See, we see people who are against us, who would like to control us, who speak ill against us, as being those whom uh, we should get rid of out of our life. If we can just get rid of all these people who don't like me, life would be fantastic. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I've put these people in your life so that you can be tested and we can develop something that has no monetary value but means everything, and that is character. Character. Character, like wisdom, is more precious than rubies, is more precious than gold. See, it doesn't matter what you've got, how much you've been given, how much you've earned. If you don't have the character and the capacity to walk through difficult circumstances without throwing your toys out of the cot, then it all means nothing. And what God is saying to David is, you're under pressure, you're under an intense amount of pressure. 3,000 people all lying down there having a snore fest, and when they wake up, want to kill you. They want to kill you, every one of them. And they will be rewarded handsomely for drilling a spear right through your innards and seeing you die. And David goes in and he says, let's just take his spear, let's just take his water jug. And, uh, and, and the big thing that we take away from this is that if people are opposed to you, still treat them with respect because God hasn't finished with them yet. This is really, really important because often when things don't, things don't go well for us, the import, what we think is important is to just cut it all off, to be done with it. Let's uh, malign that person as best as we can so that they never come within sight of us again. And, uh, and we fail to realize that that person is also under God's hand. That person is also being molded. So wherever we can, we should leave a bridge for reconciliation. We should leave a door open to the best of our ability. It's not always easy because it's a two-way street, but to the best of our ability. And so David is saying, look, I'm going to show Saul just how easy it would have been for me to kill him, but I'm not going to do that. I want to leave a door open. I want him to see that there's somebody whom I revere more than the king of Israel, and that is the God of Israel. And I will do things his way, not the human way. So how's the story? Keep going. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side, and he stood on top of a hill. Some distance away, there was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you calling? Who, who, sorry, who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What have you done? Sorry, what you have done is not good. As surely as the lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and the water jug that were near his head? An amazing picture, isn't it? David just far enough away that he could probably outrun that army, high enough probably to create a little bit of distance and a little bit of discomfort between those who would pursue him, but not so close that he couldn't be heard, not so far away that he couldn't be heard. 
and he yells, and the camp stirs. But he's not yelling at Saul. He's yelling at Saul's leader of the army, Abner. And he's saying, Abner, I have a problem with you. You are there appointed by God to protect the king. And you didn't do that. I could have killed the king. So Abner, you and all those men around you are useless at what you do and you deserve to die because you are poor soldiers. Okay, you are poor soldiers. So David's anger is directed not at Saul, but at the fact that the men of Israel weren't doing their job right. It was so easy to walk into the camp and, uh, and, and kill the commander. My, our son Taylor is in the military and um, he was explaining to us about some manoeuvres that they did a couple of years ago in, in a training exercise. And this was an international set of manoeuvres. There are Americans and Australians and all that there. And uh, he said what happened was um, it's a simulated, sort of simulated real life scenario. These guys got electronic gear on them and so if, if, uh, if, the, if the bullet appears to shoot them, you're dead. Okay, you have to be carted off the battlefield. And uh, in this scenario, um, one of the Kiwi guys um, shot and killed an American, this is not real life, okay, took his clothes, put them on, and then waltzed straight into the American camp and with real authority in his voice said, it's really, really important that I see the commander. I have to see him right now. Things aren't going well. I have to see him. And the commander comes running out, stands in front of him, and he goes, bang, bang, you're dead. <laughs> that was it. The battle exercise was over. New Zealand won. <laughs> Yay! But this is a very similar scenario, isn't it? And so what David is saying is, you should have lost your king today. So what was Abner guilty of? Abner was guilty of nothing. You say, well, how can you be guilty of nothing? Of course you can be guilty of nothing. Nothing is not neutral. Nothing is not neutral. When you're in a place like Abner, you have to be actively doing something to prove what it is that you are there to do. And to be seen to be doing nothing is not appropriate. And so it is with every one of us when it comes to our relationships with people, uh, when it comes to... Uh, things that might cause tension, you can't do nothing. You have to do something. And it's very easy in New Zealand to do nothing because we're sort of a, you know, a tall poppy type nation anyway. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were just starting to prepare that fence uh, on the boundary there as you come in. You know, we've ripped the fence down. Not me personally, but uh, it's, uh, it's actually Fraser Sanderson who owns the Bethlehem Country Club, who owns that land next door. He's going to put 19 houses up. Uh, starting soon and he came to us and he said would you like us to put a new fence up there we'll take all the trees out um, we'll do all the work you guys just pay for 50 cent 50 cents 50 percent of the building materials and we said that's that's great thanks very much uh, Caleb Fryer one of our pastors is out there parking his car in the morning a couple of weeks ago and some folks from the neighborhood just were walking their dog I think across the car park there as often people do and Fraser saw, uh, sorry, Caleb saw, saw them and said good morning. And they stopped and they said, oh, is this Fraser Sanderson getting his own way again, is it? 
And Caleb goes, oh, he's a great neighbor. Oh, he's been really good to us. And he explained the story and said, you know, this is what he's done and this is what we're paying and it's going to be all nice and tidy and neat and I'm going to put some houses up there, beautiful homes and, and all that. It's, it's good. But how easy it would have been for Caleb to have simply said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know how it is around here, you know? Because that would be the Kiwi way. Oh, yeah, whatever, it's all poppy. You know, say nothing. Say nothing and affirm somebody in what it is that is actually wrong. Isn't that true? It's so easy to do that. And, and, uh, and in, this, in, the same, in the same context, you know, leaders like government leaders or business leaders, they're easy targets. They're soft targets, aren't they? Because everybody wants to, you know, pull somebody down who's seemed to be in a position of authority. Um, and, and sometimes nothing is the only thing that a leader can do or say. Um, think, of, think of situations in your workplace where maybe a worker that you're friends with hasn't been performing well and they go and see the boss. They come into the lunchroom and they go, oh, that boss is a so-and-so and a so-and-so. You know? What is it that you say at that time? Nothing. By saying nothing, it's a passive affirmation of what it is that that person's just said. You know? The simple truth is, if you don't hear the other side of the story from the boss about what that person was disciplined for, then your boss is doing the right job, doing his job well. He's doing the right thing. Because imagine if the boss came into the lunchroom and said, <laughs> man, you should have seen him squirm when I told him off. Hey? Oh, gosh, that was such a hoot. I wish I could do that more often. No, well, you don't get that. A good boss is never going to do that. So, so just realize that if you're not hearing the other side of the story, then the boss is doing the job right. Yeah? You see, but you can't affirm somebody by saying nothing. There's nothing neutral about that sort of thing. And so David is saying to Abner, you are guilty for doing nothing. And so the story continues. Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then, he may, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, maybe they be cursed before the lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has to come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Here's David. And this is very familiar, isn't it? To the same time when he cut off the cloak. And David is saying, again, essentially the same words. Look, if you've got something against me, we can work it out. If I've done something wrong to the king, I can make a sacrifice before God and seek his forgiveness and his restoration. Uh, if I've done something against somebody else, then we need to know about it and I need to be able to sort it out. David is saying... Look, as far as it depends upon me, I want to put this thing into its right place. And this is where Saul 
gets so convicted. He gets really angry. Because what David is doing, he's not cursing Saul. He's not telling him off for, uh, for being of bad character. All, all David is doing is he's holding a mirror up to the guy and saying, look, can you see, can you see what I see? Are we seeing the same thing? Are we seeing the same thing here? What I'm seeing in this whole story, says David, is that I don't think I've done anything wrong, but, but you, you, you're accusing me. And you've probably got 3,000 other people in that camp who have listened to your lies about how I'm against you, how I'm deserving of death. But just show me one thing that I've done wrong, and if so, I'll repent of it. And so here we have this scenario that every one of us doesn't want to have happening. You see, the thing is that when we look in the mirror, we want to see the good bits of our life, don't we? That's human nature. We want to see the good bits. We want to go there and say, oh, if I hold my head down in front of the mirror, my hair doesn't look like it's receding quite so much. Well, that's me talking to myself anyway. And I've noticed that every time I walk past the mirror, my stomach goes in. <laughs> you see, I, I want to see what I want to see. Is it, is it just me, or does some of you suffer from that too, you know? <laughs> Come on, fathers, on Father's Day, I know you're going to eat chocolates and everything today. Let's just let it all hang out and enjoy the day, okay? <laughs> let's, let's enjoy the day. But when you have this mirror in front of you, um, you have to face things that you're not proud of. You've been pursuing me, Saul. You remember when you went to the, the, the town of Nob that year ago and you killed 85 priests because they gave me some bread and a sword? That's literally an overkill, don't you think? Literally an overkill. And Saul, look, twice now I could have killed you, but I haven't. What more can I do? David is, is just beside himself. What more can I do? And we've got to ask this question because it begs to be asked when we look at Saul's life. is How much does our lack of character diminish God's purposes? Yeah? When we're under pressure, I had an elders retreat yesterday and uh, just chatting with them um, about my journey last year as the Baptist National Leader and how we were working through this discussion about same-sex marriage and whether, um, you know, as Baptists we should be uh, saying yes to same-sex marriages. Um, there was a lot of debate, a lot of debate for lots of different reasons, not just about that subject. But I, I, I hosted 24 different meetings around the country. And uh, in our biggest city, at the end of this time, when I was pretty exhausted, um, I, I got hammered, I got absolutely hammered by people who hold a more liberal, liberal perspective. And, uh, and I was sitting there as I was having these words poured over me, which are unjustified. Yeah, my friend John was there with me. And I was thinking to myself, one wrong word from me now, and it's all over. 
If I say the wrong thing now, if I react, if I pull out my sword or my spear, it's all over. My credibility goes down the gurgler if I meet this fire with fire. Because there was fire coming this way, and I thought, I can handle it. I can burn. I can burn. But because for a greater good, I'll keep my integrity and I'll keep my, um, my game face on. And I'll process this, these accusations and these challenges. I'll process them later in a better place with some people around me who understand. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, so the thing is that when we're challenged like this, we've got a choice. We can blow up or we can grow up because it's all about our character. As I said earlier on, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to that 10%. Is it, most of you would agree on that? It's true, isn't it? You know, most of life is actually, life is not that exciting as far as all the events that happen in our lives. But what makes it exciting is how we respond to it, better or, or, better or bad, okay? And in that process, we're getting bitter or better, yeah? And so we have these, these moments. And again, this moment came upon Saul, and this is how he responded. Then Saul said, I have sinned which is a great confession. I have sinned. Those are wonderful words. They sound like they're humble. Did it change him after he said that? No. But let's listen to his confession. It's kind of good anyway. It sounds right. I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Now, David must have heard the echo there from the last time he heard this. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. Read, the skinny little guy who's got pimples, I want him to come and get the spear. I don't want your best warrior coming to get the spear. (coughs) The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, You may be blessed. David, my son, you will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. That last line tells us a lot about David's confidence in Saul's confession. (laughs) Saul's there at the beginning, top line. I have sinned. Come back, David. David would be going, no chance. <laughs> I've been here before. You know, not on your nelly. I'm not coming down that camp. You send that little skinny, runny 13-year-old to come up and get your spear back too. I don't trust you as far as I could throw you. Okay? Now, there's a lesson in that too about trust and about having right relationship with somebody. David was trying to make sure that the relationship was right. He was doing everything he could. But his experience told him that he needs to be wise. He wasn't going to walk down the camp and say to Saul, here's your sword, here's your spear back, buddy. Come on, 
let's go back to Jerusalem, you know. That wasn't going to happen. He couldn't trust this turkey at all, you know. He couldn't. Because this guy had a bitter and twisted view of himself and David. And that was going to take more than just an embarrassing situation for him to actually listen. But in front of all of those men, all of those 3,000 people whom he would have convinced that David was the enemy, he now, in a public setting, in that reception, he had to turn around and swallow his pride and head back to Jerusalem. The critical thing about this story for us, and this is why I think God wants it to be recorded twice, essentially the same story, isn't it, in many respects, to the, the time in the cave, is that David speared, no, he didn't spear, he spared, he spared Saul's life for God's sake. Yeah? Because he didn't want to take Israel down a journey of the unknown. You kill the anointed, you kill that guy, it just sets in motion negative things. And we're going to see in David's life in some decades ahead when we get there how David doesn't act with integrity, doesn't act within the character that God had given him, and things start to turn real messy. David spared Saul's life for God's sake, not for Saul's sake or his own. He spared it for God's sake. And this should start to bring some sort of echo of familiarity to us. Because around about 1,500 years later, there was a guy who came from the line of David called Jesus, who's very familiar to us. Some of us know this person and he went to a cross silent like a lamb to the slaughter with authority with opportunity but with no guilt and he took our shame as he went to the cross and he died there and he said forgive them Lord for they know not what they do and so we can see this, this bow being drawn from, from, from David's experiences here in the desert, and we project it right through to that Christ-like event, that Christ event. And it tells us that David's actions are a Christ-like event. When he chose not to defend himself, but for the sake of the greater good, he said, God, again, I will grow up, not blow up, and I will take in and upon myself the suffering that is needed to make this situation right. Friends, we're all called to be burden bearers, every one of us. And there are times when we have to just take the hits, suck it up, so that the greater good can be worked through. You know, Father's Day, it's a, it's a great opportunity to look at that as an illustration. Father's Day. You know, there are times when you overlook your children's misdeeds, we won't call them sins, because why? Because there's a bigger lesson for them to learn. Grace is being seen. Love is being shown. Compassion and mercy is being given. And all of these things give us the opportunity to either grow up or blow up and to be like David was as an example to us as Jesus would be. So, exposing the soul is a lot about what it is to be a follower of Jesus, isn't it? Because in these stories, in these moments, 
we find that the mirror is turned back and we're looking at ourselves and we go, oh bother, oh bother. I don't like what I see, but God has been gracious enough to show me. And just like David said, I can make a sacrifice and seek forgiveness. So it is for us. There's nothing that can't be redeemed, nothing that can't be forgiven, nothing that can't be changed, as long as God's put right in the middle of it. Let's stand for prayer. Just invite the team to come out. Father, we, we read stories like this from Scripture and somehow by your Spirit, somehow in your goodness to us, we have this resonance that starts to build up in our heart. And all of a sudden, Lord, we find our whole life bouncing around in front of us as your Spirit opens us up and helps us to realize that we too are on a journey like David. Or maybe we're on a journey like Saul. Or maybe we're on a journey like David and Saul, but it's simultaneous. And maybe that's just what the human condition is all about. The good and the bad, the fights, the internal reconciliation that occurs as we wrestle our way through life, trying to work out what's right, what's wrong. Shall I say something? Shall I do nothing? Am I guilty if I do nothing? And if I guilty, am I do something? What do I say? When do I say it? What do I believe? All of these questions inside of us, the Saul and the David. And Lord, in the midst of it, Lord, we, we say, whatever it is that we do, however we respond, we want it to glorify God. We want to glorify God in such a way that God, you win. And if at times it means we have to suck up the pain and be like Christ and bear a few burdens, well, so be it. That's the building of Christ-like character in each of us. And we accept that challenge, Lord. You love us enough to accept us as we are, but you love us enough to change us as well. And so, God, we, we give you that opportunity. We say yes, Lord. Yes to testing. Yes to challenges. Yes to the times when there's confusion. Because these are the opportunities for us to grow into more Christ-like character. And so, Father, we thank you for that today. Thank you for in your word where you've shown us how it is that other people have responded. That we can make choices equally that would honour you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.